Well, good evening, and uh, thank you so much for joining us here uh, tonight as we continue our series entitled For Our Good. And if this is your first time uh, listening or uh, maybe you're a little unfamiliar with what we're doing, uh, the series is designed around uh, several uh, theological concepts or words or phrases uh, that basically sometimes in, in Christian movements can kind of seem a little heady or they can seem kind of out of reach for people. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to create a venue where we talk about these theological concepts and the power that they hold and not just kind of dismiss them because we may not understand them fully. It's kind of like this. I remember about 15 years ago, my wife and I and our oldest daughter now is 18, but she was just a, a little thing. And uh, we were living in Panama City, and um, we would oftentimes uh, spend a lot of time outdoors, and we would go to uh, the national parks and the beaches um, just to have some family time. And I remember specifically one time we were going through uh, one of the state parks, and uh, there's a lot of woods and, and just beautiful nature. There are deer everywhere. And they have a couple of outlook posts for alligators. And so basically you can, you can walk out on a dock and there's kind of like this fenced in pond uh, that has alligators and you can, you can see them and everything. And uh, I remember one time we went and um, we were showing Autumn some of these alligators and you could kind of see them off in the distance, but you couldn't see them up close. And so um, we got ready to leave and, and my mother-in-law and father-in-law were with us and uh, we started walking back to the car and as we approach the car on the other side of the road from the dock, um, there is this huge marshland. And you could tell that there were certain spots where the alligators were coming across the street, going back and forth to the pond and to the marsh. And um, in these little spots where the alligators would come up, uh, like you could tell there were huge rub spots where the gators would come and go. And at one particular rub spot, there was a, um, there was a little fence area where they were trying I guess to create a barrier between the alligator and, and the road so they would kind of stay in the marsh. And I remember as I walked over to the car, one of these fences was, was right next to the car. And on the other side of the fence, there was about a four foot long alligator right there. And people saw it and people were spazzing out and they were grabbing their kids to protect them instinctively. And I only had one thought in that moment. And my thought was, I've got to touch that alligator. I have got to put my hands on that alligator just so that I can say that I touched the alligator. And so in my young stupidity and naivety, I took my hand and I reached through the fence and I touched the tail of that alligator. And right when I did, that sucker jumped and snapped at my hand. And I'm gonna tell you, I screamed like a little girl. And I jumped about five feet off the ground. I latched onto the car that was right next to us, thoroughly humiliated myself in front of not only my in-laws, but my wife and my daughter and all the other spectators. Um, it, was a, it was a crazy thing. But in the moment, I remember thinking, I cannot believe so much power is contained in such a small thing. And the reality is, is that all of these concepts that we're talking about tonight, we're going we're gonna to shift our focus toward spiritual adoption, sonship. As we talk about all these theological concepts, 
it's important for us to, to realize that these aren't things just for a set of, of theologians and scholars or people who are you know, super mature in the faith. But these are, are small concepts, but they are packed with so much power that it truly has the potential to change our lives as individuals. And so, as I said, tonight we're going to shift our focus and we're going we're gonna to focus on the, the idea of sonship in the spiritual realm. But in order to do that, it's, it's very important that we understand why it's important that we be adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High God. And so as we, as we dig into Scripture and, and we look at it from a 30,000-foot uh, view, what we realize is that even back before creation, God created angelic hosts. Uh, following the creation of the planet, he created um, human beings. And what's interesting in scripture is that, that these creations are titled sons of God, or they're, they're entitled the children of God, both angelic host and, and human beings. And the reality is, is that ever since these creative things have taken on life, that Satan has attacked God's children in these forms. So we can see in the book of Ezekiel and the book of Revelation, way back in eternity past, we see where Lucifer was an angel himself. But in his rebellion against God the Father, he chose to attack uh, the angelic host or the sons of God in that context. And the Bible says that he was able to deceive a third of the angelic host as an attack against God and his followers. In the Garden of Eden, uh, you see um, the beginnings of, of death and the beginnings of a new attack, not just on the angelic host that God had created, but on the human host that God has created. In the Garden of Eden, we see Adam and Eve here, and we see uh, Satan go after God's very first created children, and he is able to deceive them. And, and once he's deceived them, he pushes them towards uh, spiritual and physical death. And in the end, the reality is, is that not only did he, was he able to deceive Adam and Eve, but he initiated kind of like a, a, a spirit of death that is still prevalent even in our world today. And so from the garden, uh, the attack, the satanic attack on God's creation or God's children did not stop there. Uh, we see in the book of Exodus, uh, Pharaoh uh, is, is, you know, influenced by, uh, by demonic influence, and he sets out to destroy uh, the children of the Hebrews, and he has them uh, just slaughtered by the thousands. Uh, on into the book of um, Matthew, and in, in the Gospels, we see King Herod. And based out of his insecurity, he goes to Bethlehem and he starts slaughtering children that are under the age of two. Um, in, the, in, the, in the Old Testament, there is, a, there is an idol by the name of Moloch. And, and Moloch basically promises uh, those that would sacrifice their children to him, he promises them financial security and comfort in this life. Uh, man, if you even look at our modern society and here in the Western culture, 
Um, we see that abortion is, is rampant in this nation and other nations like ours. I was reading a study um, a few months ago, and, and the study was an old study. It's not even really that much up to date. Um, the study was from the late 1990s into about 2010 or 11. And basically the study reported that, that in the United States, that 50 to 80% of children pre-diagnosed with Down syndrome are aborted in the womb. And so it's not just that Satan attacked God's angelic host. It's not just that Satan attacked God's um, first children, but the spirit of death has haunted all of humanity for all of this time. And so, so as a reaction or as a response to the spirit of death that, that goes after our children, that really goes after all of humanity, adoption is a response to this. And so in the Old Testament, um, the, the word adoption doesn't appear anywhere in the Old Testament. There's not a Levitical provision of the law uh, for adoption, but we know that adoption was happening in response to infanticide and in response to people abandoning their children and such. Uh, we see this in the life of Moses. His birth mother is a Hebrew and she gives birth to him. And this is in the midst of, of Pharaoh's havoc on children. So she takes the child in and puts him in a basket and sends him down river in hope that somehow he will survive. Ironically, Pharaoh's sister sees the child and the Bible says that she took the child and brought him into her home and raised him as her own child. Um, in the book of Esther, we see Esther. Uh, history tells us that uh, Esther's birth father died sometime while Esther's mother was pregnant. And then in labor, Esther's mother died. And so her uncle and her aunt, uh, Mordecai, comes, he steps into the picture and he takes this child and adopts her and brings her into his home. In the book of Job, one of the oldest books in, in scripture and in recorded history that we have, the Bible speaks so positively of Job. The Bible says that Job cared for orphans as a father would care for his children. Um, so, so even though the, the, the wording of adoption was not in scripture and although we don't have prescriptions from the Levitical law, the reality is, is that even in the Old Testament, Adoption was a very prevalent thing to help and to rescue children that were in danger. All throughout church history, you see this, this same thing. Tertullian, one of, the, one of the earliest church fathers, he would say that, that Christians would scour the land and they would go to uh, the garbage heaps and the dung hills that lie outside of cities where um, animal feces and human feces were, were shoveled together and they were, they were dropped in a huge pile to be burned outside of a city. People would take their children that either they did not want or were born with some type of birth defect or uh, disability, and they would take these children and they would just leave them on the, the garbage heaps or on the dung hills. And Tertullian tells us, that Christians of his day would scour the land and they would go to these, these garbage heaps and these dung hills and they would rescue these children. And some of the children, when they would come to him, the children would have already died. 
but the Christians would take the children and they would give them a proper burial. But if the child was alive, they would try to nurse that child back to health. And if successful, they would bring that child into their home. Uh, all throughout church history, we see guys like Spurgeon and Whitfield and Mueller. Uh, these guys all contributed to orphanages. They, they, there were so many men and women of God, Mother Teresa, who would just work for the orphans throughout church history. When you look at our church family right now, um, you know, our, uh, on our pastoral staff, we have multiple um, families who have adopted children. My wife and I, we, we have two biological children. We've adopted two children in our church family. There are just so many people that, that have brought orphans into their home. But I'll even go a step further and say this, that there, there are a lot of families that are not called to physically adopt people but there are so many sacrificial people that exist in this church family that have given and contributed. I'll tell you this, last year, our youth ministry, the church's youth ministry, gave over $15,000 to help support an adoption. And I say all that to say this, that, that the spirit of adoption, that the spirit of caring for those and not leaving children to die or leaving children to be abandoned, this is a thread in the DNA of the church. It always has been. It always will be. And part of the reason that it always has been is because the founder, the most important person in all of human history, the founder of the Christian movement, Jesus Christ himself, was an adopted child. He was born of a woman. The Bible says that Mary was his biological uh, birth mother, but his bi he did not have a biological birth father that was here on this earth. And so Joseph, in the goodness of his heart, came and he supported Mary and he adopted Jesus into his family and he helped raise him. Uh, Jesus' half-brother James would say this about caring for orphans. He would say that pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress. And so again, it is a, it is a part of our DNA to care for other people, especially people who are less fortunate than us. And so when Paul begins writing in the New Testament, he creates this analogy between spiritual adoption and physical adoption. He uses the word weothesia, which is, which is a, a common word in the Greco-Roman culture that people would have been very aware of. And so what he does is he says, yes, um, human adoption is incredible and it is powerful and it is so meaningful, but a spiritual adoption is even so much more. And so as Paul explains what the spiritual adoption means, the realities of it, and all of these kind of things, we understand that Paul speaks directly to the fall of mankind. And he says that, that what we call original sin or universal sin that we talked about last week, which basically means that when Adam fell, when he sinned against God, that it not only affected Adam, but it affected all of humanity for all of human history. And when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, by default, we became spiritual orphans. But it's not the type of orphan where our parent has given us up for adoption. It's not the type where, where a parent has abandoned us. God has not abandoned his creation. 
his creation has abandoned him. And by default, we are now spiritual orphans. And so even in our broken state, even in the the separation from God's family, God has made a way for us and he has prepared everything that he can do in order not just to forgive us, but to bring us back into his family. As a matter of fact, he calls himself, he could call himself a million different things that would still fall short of adequately describing him. But the most common uh, description that he gives himself is our father, because he wants to bring us into his spiritual family. And so again, as amazing as spiritual adoption is, it is simply a reflection of spiritual adoption, which God has already done for us. And so in a nutshell, spiritual adoption is basically one step beyond the forgiveness of God. So in other words, God has not only forgiven us of our sins, but he has gone a step beyond that and welcomed us into his family. One writer said this, he said, look, justification is when we are acquitted in God's courtroom, but adoption is when we are welcomed into God's living room. So it's incredibly important for us to understand that that there is a sense that when we are saved by God, the, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, his blood to forgive us of our sins, it is very much a legal transaction. But it's not just a legal transaction. It is a relational transaction. It is a step above and beyond just the forgiveness of sins. He has now said, I want you to be who I am. I want you to come into my family and to become my children, and I will treat you as such. And so we need to understand that that to reject God's offer of adoption is to accept Satan's destructive plan for our lives. And so we, we need to pay attention to this uh, concept, this idea of adoption, because we are reminded that for those who receive it, we have become the children of God. And so today what I want to do is I want to run you through really quickly 12 benefits that we receive as adoptive children by the Spirit of God. And number one is this, is that we as adopted children have been bought back by God. As Paul is pinning this to uh, the, the people at Galatia, he writes this, he says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. For God to redeem us from one family and to set us in another family cost him a very high price. And so as Paul is writing this to the church at Galatia, he knows that they will understand in their culture, in the Greco-Roman culture, they will understand concepts of adoption, concepts of, of, of bringing a child from one family into another. And so one writer talks about um, the different things that they would have known as Paul is writing this. And the first thing that they would have known is that this child that is brought into a new family is no longer able to inherit from the former family. 
So in other words, if we are talking about spiritual adoption, it is so incredibly important for us to understand that when we have been taken from this family of darkness and adopted into this family of light, that we no longer inherit anything from this family of darkness. And it's not only that we no longer inherit that, but it's that we are no longer responsible for old debts. In the Greco-Roman culture, when a child was taken in, all of their debts uh, of their former family and their former life were forgiven and they were wiped out because they were now a part of a new family. In a spiritual sense, we no longer owe the debt of sin and the price of death. But because of Christ's sacrifice, we leave all of that behind. And we are now received into the new family of God where our past does no longer define us, but Christ now defines us. It is an amazing, a beautiful thing. The third and final thing that uh, Douglas would say is that in that culture, they would understand that being taken from one family and placed into another family is that this former family would now consider that child as dead, as though that child no longer existed. And I'm going to tell you, in the kingdom, between the battle of the kingdom of light and darkness, it's a good thing for this kingdom to feel like we are dead to them. And it is such a, a, a satisfying thing to know that we are brought to full life in the new kingdom of God. In the, um, in the adoption realm uh, today, uh, there, there are three different types of adoptions that, that can be pursued. Uh, the first one is what's called an open adoption. And basically, this means that when a child, when birth parents adopt a child into the new family, that these families continue to be open with one another and they continue to have influence and they continue to have visits whenever uh, and all this kind of stuff. The second type of adoption is what's called a semi-open adoption. And this basically means that, that the former family can still meet up with the child and watch the child grow and develop but it's all on the terms of the adoptive parents. So there is working together, um, but, but it's based on the adoptive parents. But finally, there's what we call a closed adoption, which basically means that when a child is, is brought from one family into another family, that the adoption and the relationship between those families are closed off. And what I want you to understand is that in the realm of spiritual adoption, this is not an open adoption where our former family, if you will, has any influence over us anymore. There is no longer this going back and forth between families. This is a closed adoption where God has said, you are no longer a part of them. You are now a part of us. It is a powerful, powerful thing for us to come to grips with that we have been bought back by God as his adopted children. Number two, we as adopted children receive the blessing and rights from God in this life that we live. And so as soon as, as we come to Christ in salvation, he has given us certain uh, giftings, certain blessings in this life that we experience. So we experience immediately unconditional love and acceptance. We experience things like the removal of sin and the removal of shame and guilt and condemnation. But we also receive on the positive side, God has, has adopted us and he said, listen, I have spiritual giftings. I have things that I want to give to you. And so he distributes to us an allotment 
of spiritual gifts. The Bible says that for every person has been gifted a spiritual gift so that they can help the entire family of God to thrive. And so he gives us these things. He gives us the potential for for spiritual fruit. There is so much that God gives us in this life once we have stepped into this relationship of adoption. But I would say this, as amazing as as all of these things are in, in this life, it is nothing compared to the gift that we will receive in eternal life. So number three, it's important to understand not only do we receive from God in this life, but we receive an inheritance from God in the next life. Romans 8 says this, it says that if we are children of God, we are now heirs of God and heirs, fellow heirs with Christ Jesus. And so when a person on on the physical level, when a person is adopted and they are brought into a family, they immediately experience certain benefits. Right. So they experience the love of a family. They experience uh, nurture and housing and all of these things. But legally, this child that has been adopted into their new family, they are now legally eligible for the inheritance of the adopted parents. And so what I want us to understand in the spiritual realm is that we have all these blessings that God wants to bestow on us and to give to us so that we can thrive in this life. But it's nothing to be compared to the inheritance that we will receive in the next life. As a matter of fact, Paul wrote this. He said, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so what Paul is saying in this moment, he's saying, look, you're going to experience the goodness of God and the gifting of God, the blessing of God in this life. But even with all that, there's something inside of us that's groaning. It's, it's turning inside of us. It's longing for the day where we actually step into our full inheritance of all that God has given to us. And it is an amazing, miraculous thing to experience them in this life and the next life. Number four is that we as adopted children possess the spirit of the living God. The Bible says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. And so when we step into this relationship with God, all of a sudden we are, we are filled, we are possessed with the Holy Spirit of God. And not only does he give us new life, not only does he refresh our souls, but the Spirit of God promises to give us comfort in the midst of turmoil. He promises to give us peace. He promises to give us a peace that surpasses all understanding. He promises to guide us and to teach us through this life. And he promises to fill us with the power from on high so that we can fulfill the destiny that God has set for us. So we are possessed by the Spirit of God as adopted children. But we are also, as adopted children, we also now carry the name of God with us. Romans 8.14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. And the reality is this, is that in in this world, um, for better or for worse, a person's namesake follows them. 
whatever family they are a part of, it, it affects their life either in a positive sense or a negative sense. So for instance, my, my daughter, Autumn, she's 18 now, but, but nonetheless, she is called Autumn by name, but we understand that she's not just Autumn, she is also a Henderson. And she's not just a Henderson, but she is Corey's daughter. But she's not just Corey's daughter, she is Pastor Corey's daughter, right? And so she is identified, again, for better or for worse, based on how I choose to live my life. She is identified with me. And so that can mean either very good things for her or it can mean very bad things for her. And in the spirit realm, we are no longer called by our old name of sinner and slave. We are now called by our new name as sons and daughters of God Almighty. And so with that come the benefits of possessing the name of God. It's amazing in, in the first few centuries of the, the Christian church, uh, there, there, there are stories written about, about Christians. Uh, there's one specifically in the era of Constantine, and, uh, and it's talking about Christians and how they would approach uh, emperors, and they would, they would come to pay homage or, or respect, and they would kneel before the emperor as a, as a sign of respect, and how it kind of affected prayer life and people who would say, look, if I'm going to kneel before a ruler, you better be sure I'm going to kneel before God Almighty, my Father. And so um, they, they would begin to kneel in prayer before the Lord. But there, there, there's history that's written that, that tells stories about Christians who they would kneel in prayer before God um, throughout the week. But when the Lord's day came about and they all gathered together, it's said that they would on that day no longer kneel before God in prayer, but they would stand before God in prayer because they associated the Lord's day with their day of adoption. And they understood and had so much confidence in the idea that we are now sons of God, that they did not have to approach God in a state of brokenness and, and humility in this, or humiliation, but they approached God as children who would walk in before him into the arms of a loving father. They had such tremendous confidence that their name was now the name of God and they could approach him with boldness. It was really an incredible, beautiful thing that we possess the name of God now. Number six is that we as adopted children have been chosen by God. In the book of Ephesians, Paul talks about uh, this whole plan that kind of unfolds um, when it comes to God's plan of salvation. And you almost get this picture, this image that, that the triune God is kind of outside the scope of time and space and they're watching human history. And it's almost as if they look to each other and they're, they're conversing about this great plan of salvation. And the father says, this is the plan that I want executed. And the son steps up and he says, I will, I will go and I will make my life a living sacrifice so that these children can be brought into this family so that they can be redeemed. And the spirit of God steps in and says, and I will seal the deal. I will make sure that they are, they are taken care of and that they are preserved for this salvation. And, and so Paul writes it like this. He says, in love, the father predestined us for adoption as sons through the son. So we become sons and daughters through the son of God. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. When you heard the word of truth and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. And it is a powerful, astounding thing to think that God in all of his goodness before the history of the world had ever begun, that he looked to me and to you and he said, I want that one. I choose that one and I want that one to be brought into my family. And on a human level, we can kind of understand. I remember um, my, one of my adopted children, Emery, you know, I remember going in and, and thinking before, before I knew anything about her life, before I knew how the story would unfold, I looked at the child and I said, I want that one. I choose her. And we brought her home. And here, here's the thing, not knowing how the plan was going to unfold, not knowing all that we would, that we would face, we still understood that, that though she is a child, there is probably coming a day where she's going to hurt me, where she is going to say things that are wounding to me, or she's going to sin against our family. Uh, there are probably going to be those things. But even in the spite of that, I looked at the child and said, I want that one. I choose her and to bring her in to be a part of this family. Well, that is a powerful thing from a human perspective, but it is extraordinarily magnified when you consider that the God of the universe not just randomly chose children, but he randomly chose rebels that had rebelled and sinned against him. And he said, I know what they've done. I know what they're going to do, but I choose them to come in and to be a part of this family. It is a powerful, powerful concept. Number seven is that we as adopted children are unconditionally loved by God. First John, John the beloved, this was Jesus's closest friend. John wrote this, he said, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. This isn't, this isn't a moment where God is getting thing, anything out of this spiritual adoption. This isn't Miss Hannigan and Annie where she's a part of a racket and she's going she's gonna to earn all this money for children that she brings in. Listen to me, God gets nothing out of this deal. He gets nothing out of this deal. We get the blessing. We get the inheritance. We get the goodness of God. It's not that God was motivated by anything else outside of sheer love and compassion for his children that had been deceived. And the reality is, is that out of all of these things we're talking about, this is probably the most difficult thing to grasp out of all of them. The notion that we can be unconditionally loved and accepted by God without doing anything to earn it. And part of the reason is because we oftentimes will, will take what we see in the lives of other people, fathers for better or for worse, and we will take the image of what we see here on earth and we will kind of project it on the image of, of God the Father. And, and so if a person grows up and they feel like they can never attain the approval and the affirmation of their earthly father, then they will kind of project that on God the Father. 
And the reality is nothing could be further from the truth. God is like us in a sense, but God is completely other than us in a different sense. He does not love the way that we love. He does not accept the way that we accept. His is far beyond what we could ever do or what we could ever consider. And so we have to come to a place where we understand that, the, that we are deeply valued, not based on what we do, but on what has been done for us. And there's nothing we could do to earn it. Paul said to the Ephesian church, he said, look, he said, this gift of God, it is, it is a free gift of eternal life. And the reason God did this is so that you would not think that you could earn it and then in turn begin to boast about it and to fall in sin again. He said, no, this is done for you. And there is nothing, as Pastor always says, nothing that you can do to cause God to love you any more or to cause God to love you any less. We are valued regardless. We are completely, fully, and utterly accepted by our Father in heaven. This is the idea of adoption. I look at my children right now. I have two biological children and two children who were adopted. And there is no distinguishing, like mentally and logically, I understand there, there is a distinction. But emotionally, when I approach them, how I deal with them, how I value them, how I love them, what they receive from me, uh, all of these things, there is no distinction. I do not treat any of my children differently based on what they do for me or based on what they do against me. I, I treat my children all the same because they are of equal value, whether they believe it or not. And the reality is that is how God feels about you. And that's how God feels about me. Regardless of how we feel, God stands by his word that we are utterly and fully accepted as Christ. And so, Number eight, as we go along, we understand that adopted children also have received a new father. This notion of, of having a father in heaven, Paul writes, uh, you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And the word Abba, as many of you know, a proper translation is the word daddy. And so, so even Jesus, as he's praying, he uses terminology that isn't, that isn't cold and distant. And, and this, honestly, this offended a lot of the Pharisees in that day that saw God as this strictly judicial, cold and distant being. And Jesus steps in and says, there are judicial things that have to happen. But those things aside, he is, he is first and foremost a father. Right. And so Jesus uh, initiates this idea of understanding that God is a, a tender, loving God. He is a, a compassionate father to all of us. And as his adopted children, we are now welcomed not only into his home, but to sit at his table and to play a role in his family. It is a powerful, powerful thing. And so we, we have a new father in Christ. Number nine is that we as adopted children are a part of the family of God now. So not only do we have a new father, but now we have spiritual siblings. And I'll tell you this, I think that we need to get back to a place where we use spiritual language more than we don't. I know that the idea of having, uh, you know, walking into church, I remember one time years and years ago when we were uh, serving at a church in Panama City, um, someone walked up to my wife who at the time was probably 23 or 24 years old and they called her Sister Joy. 
And I remember the expression on her face and she was so shocked because nobody had ever called her Sister Joy. And I don't know if she was offended or, or encouraged by it. But the reality is, is that I know that that's not a very common thing to do anymore. When I don't say this, I think it's important because it, it reveals a reality. The Bible says this, Peter wrote in his first epistle. He said that we should resist the devil standing firm in the faith because you know that you have the family of believers throughout the world undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And so Peter's saying, look, as adopted children, you are not just, you're no longer just a part of your biological family, but there is a spiritual DNA that's spread all throughout the earth. And these are your spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. Because Peter understood one thing that we need to understand again. That there is something, there is a connectedness and there is a spiritual reality that transcends biology. I remember uh, last summer, my wife told me um, about a time she was, I was here at work, but she was taking all four of uh, our children uh, up to our neighborhood pool. And um, as she was walking, um, my son Easton ran into one of his friends at the pool and um, as they were talking and different things, the little guy looked at, at my son Easton and he said, Easton, uh, which one of these is your sister? And Easton said, well, they're, they're all my sister. And the kid looked at him and said, no, I mean, who is your real sister? And Easton looked and he said, dude, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, they are all my real sister. And the reality is that the beauty of it is that Easton wasn't trying to make a point. Just in his mind, there's no difference. There's, the biology doesn't make the difference. He was not trying to make a point. And, and the truth is, in the, in the kingdom of God, we, we have to get back to a place where we understand that we are a part of something far bigger than ourselves. We have brothers and sisters. We have people that are for us, and we need to be for them, and we need to embrace all that God has for us in this. Number 10, we are adopted children and we fall under the care of God. So not only do we understand that, that God in his providence continually watches over us, not only do we realize that every number, uh, every hair on our head is numbered, but we also understand there is a different kind of care that God offers through the discipline of his children. As a matter of fact, God would go as far to say this. He would say, look, if you were never chastised, if you were never disciplined by your spiritual father, you may want to question whether or not you've been adopted into the family of God. And so this, this divine discipline that God gives us, it's called discipline, but it's really loving development that God is offering us in his sovereign care. And so we have this whole gamut of, of different ways that God cares for us. I remember a, a few weeks ago, I was um, early one morning, I, I got up and, and I went into prayer and I was in the living room in the morning and sitting in front of the fire and I was kind of on my knees and, and I was praying and one of my daughters, Ella, came in the room and she came and she always sits on my lap and so I have a blanket and we kind of covered and, and I was just going through some things emotionally and, and I was thinking about her and I was just praying for her and I was loving her and asking God for his protective care, not only over her immediate life, but her future. And um, in a moment, I had a, I had a split vision, if you will. And as I sat there on my knees and as I, as I cradled Ella in my arms and I just laid my head on top of her head, 
I saw this vision of me sitting there holding her, but then the arms of the father around me holding me with his head on me. And it was this beautiful reminder that as an adopted father in the physical realm, everything that I want to do to care for her is just a, a hazed mirror compared to the great care that the father has for me as his adopted son. And so we are deeply and desperately taken into the father's loving care. Number 11 is that we as adopted children bear responsibility to God. Ephesians chapter one says that God the father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should live holy and blameless before him. Now, again, let's not be mistaken. This is not that we are earning our salvation or earning the love or earning the approval or affirmation of God. It is simply a response of our living and response of what God has done for us that we begin to live in these ways. Uh, Paul would write to the Romans. He said, look, in view of God's mercy, or in other words, in view of all that God has done for you, live a sacrificial life that's holy and pleasing to him. Right? So Paul is saying, look, in response to everything that, that God has done for you, all this adoption, all this forgiveness, all of this, he says, man, in response to that, live a life that's, that's honoring to the Lord. Right? So it's not about earning. It's, it's not about that. It's about a responsibility in response to the love of God. And then finally, number 12, is that we as adopted children have a future hope in God. Shortly before Jesus went to the cross, he was trying to just settle the disciples and, and in some way help prepare them for what was to come, even though they did not fully grasp it or understand. But Jesus, knowing that they would need to hear these words echoed in just a few short days and hours, Jesus said this. He said, be at peace. I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come for you. The reality is this is that as God's adopted children, regardless of what we face in this life, the trial and tribulation, the frustration, regardless of it all, we have a hope and a promise of a future that he is coming for us. And when he comes for us, we're reminded multiple times in scripture that no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And I say, amen. Today, as we, uh, we close and just before Pastor Justin comes to uh, lead us in prayer, I wanted to take a moment and share with you um, something that's transpired in, in my life and my wife, my family's life. As I said before, my, my wife and I, we have two biological children, Autumn and Easton. Uh, we have two adopted children, uh, Ella and Emery. And about six weeks ago, we got a phone call from our attorney in Florida, and he informed us that Ella and Emery's birth mother was now pregnant again with another child. And the birth mother had inquired to see if we would consider raising all three siblings together. And so the last six weeks has been incredibly interesting, and there has been a lot of prayer and a lot of tears, a lot of consideration. Um, but ultimately, we have decided that, that we are going to bring this child into our family. As a matter of fact, following, following this in the morning, we leave 
uh, to head to go pick up this child. And uh, we just wanted to share with the church family um, the, the beauty of this moment, and we hope that you're celebrating with us. I know that some of you may think that we are absolutely crazy at this moment, that we'll have five children and three that are adopted. Um, but I'll tell you, we believe that it's the Father's heart to care for, for the orphan, and, and we want to be good stewards of that. And so I, I would just ask you as a church family, uh, I would ask you, I feel kind of selfish asking you uh, to do this, but we desperately would ask for your prayers. Uh, we would ask that you would uh, ask the Lord to give us protection as we travel, that God would give us um, miraculous provision um, for this adoption process and funding and all the things that come along with that. We would ask you for the child. Uh, for uh, the health of the child and the wholeness of the child, uh, spirit, soul, and body. And we would ask you to pray for our family as a whole unit because uh, anytime, whether you have a biological child or you adopt a child, there are impacts that happen to your family. And our children are thrilled, uh, amazingly thrilled beyond belief uh, to welcome in another child. Um, but the reality is there will be impacts and we will have to deal with those as, as the time comes. And so we would just covet your prayers and uh, your support during this time. We love you so very much and are so grateful for you that you and I are spiritual siblings because of the great gift that God has given us in spiritual adoption. So the Lord bless you. Pastor Justin, will you come and lead us in prayer? We love you so much. Um, what an awesome opportunity before you and before all of us to be reminded that we have been adopted into the family of God. I'm going to show my age a little bit here, but there's a song by Bill Gaither that came to mind as Pastor Corey was preaching. And I just want to read this one segment out of the lyrics of the song. It says, from the door of an orphanage to the house of the king, no longer an outcast, a new song I sing. From rags unto riches, from the weak to the strong, I'm not worthy to be here, but praise God, I belong. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood, joint heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod, for I'm a part of the family, the family of God. And I want to say I'm so glad to be a part of his family. And I'm glad that you're a part of his family and that we can join together tonight to be in the word and to pray. And I want to encourage you to pray with us. As you know, Wednesday is our day of prayer and fasting corporately as a church. And we give you Wednesday prayer priorities each Sunday. And I hope that you received your email yesterday listing what those prayer needs are. But for the next few weeks, we're going to be praying with intentionality, deliberately, um, I believe as I was waking this morning and in, in that not twilight moment, but not sure you're awake, not sure you're asleep quite moment, I felt the Lord say, I want the church to begin to pray strategically and not reactively. And I think that's a word of encouragement for you. I believe many of you are doing that, but some of you are getting your legs in prayer and you're reacting to everything. And I remember when all of this started with the pandemic, a lot of people were saying, aren't we going to pray for this and pray for that? Yes, but we continued our course of our 40 days of prayer for our city. And that is what stabilized us and got us to the place where the city and our homes and our hearts and our church were ready 
for what was before us. But for these next two or three weeks, I do want us to pray more specifically about the effects of this virus. And so you should have that email. If you've not received it, you can email us at info at clcolumbia.com to receive our Wednesday prayer priority. We'll be glad to send that to you. But would you join with me in prayer for the last few minutes we have together this evening? And let's ask the Lord to move. Because remember, folks, things happen when we pray that do not happen if we do not pray. And we don't want anything to go undone. And prayer is not our last resort. It's our first priority. It's our first response. And so we want to ask the Lord to meet us and to to work on our behalf and do what we cannot do in our own strength so that his kingdom comes and his will is accomplished as we pray every week together the Lord's Prayer. But let's pray together tonight. Would you join me? Father, in our homes, in our car, on the way home from work, Lord, as we just come together as a church family through technology and through this live stream, we ask that you would continue to superintend over every detail for our nation, our world, our state, our city during this pandemic. And Father, we are asking for those who are sick and infected that you would heal and help and sustain bodies and spirits. Lord, that you would contain the spread of this infection, that Lord, we would see the peak and then see the downside of the viral curve. And we ask, Lord, that lives would begin to be miraculously touched. We would see limited deaths and we would see reduced uh, cases reported. Father, we're praying for our vulnerable populations today, those who are elderly, those who are suffering from physical illness or underlying medical issues. We ask that you'd also provide for the poor during this time. Lord, thank you for the doors that have opened to us here at Christian Life to serve those who have contracted the virus, who are in self-isolation, and were able to get essential goods and services to them. Lord, we pray for our local, state, and federal governments and our leaders. Father, we just received news today that our schools would be closed for the remainder of the school year here in South Carolina. And we just pray that you continue to help our elected officials. We pray for Governor McMaster today. We pray for President Trump. We pray for the mayors of the towns that we live in here in the greater Columbia area that you would help them to allocate necessary resources for combating this pandemic. And, Lord, you'd help them to be able to provide more tests. And I pray that there just be a sense of leadership and a sense of following the direction and leading of the Holy Spirit. Lord, don't let them fall prey to the trap of leading by the arm of the flesh, but instead let them rely on you and look to you. And Lord, if they're not believers, surround them with believing men and women of faith who trust God, who are full of the Holy Spirit and power to give them advice during these difficult times. Lord, we also pray today for our scientific community that you would help them as they lead the charge to understand the disease and communicate its gravity to us. Give them knowledge, wisdom, and a persuasive voice. Lord, we also pray for the media who are reporting night and day on updates and details and changes. And we ask that you would help them, empower them to communicate up-to-date information with the appropriate seriousness. But Lord, help it not to cause panic. Father, we don't want to pray from a state of panic. Now, Lord, we know you'll answer us 
I just think of that prayer in the New Testament when Peter was sinking, Jesus, help. That was a prayer of panic, and you answered him. But, Lord, we don't want to pray from a place of panic. We want to pray from a place of peace, knowing that we're covered by your blood. We're full of the Spirit of God. We're walking step in step with your plan as it unfolds before us. Thank you that you are a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path, and you promise to give us step-by-step instructions as we walk with you. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to limit our intake of negative or overreaching or opportunities to allow fear to come in. Help us to limit and streamline our intake of information. Lord, I pray that you would use that information instead to equip us to be good neighbors. Lord, help us to run to your word. Help us to run to your presence. And I pray that you would keep us from anxiety and panic and enable us to implement the recommended strategy set before us. Father, we pray for those with mental health challenges. Lord, there may be someone listening right now who they feel isolated, anxious, and helpless. But Lord, I pray that they would begin to know the power of your presence and that the peace of God would flood their heart, provide every person with mental health challenges during this season, the necessary support that they so desperately need. We pray for the homeless and those who uh, are in shelters and who are unable to practice protocols of social distancing. Lord, we pray that you protect them from disease and provide isolation shelters in every city to meet needs for this population of our nation. And Lord, finally tonight we pray for international travelers. Lord, this really just stuck out in my heart. Lord, those that are in a foreign land who are American citizens and want to get home, I pray that you would cover them and you would open doors for them. Help them to return home quickly and safely. And we just ask that they would be reunited with their families and friends. And Lord, that you would heal them as well. Father, we bring all of this to you knowing that you hear us, knowing that you answer us, knowing that you are more than enough and that your grace is sufficient. Thank you, Father, for the power of prayer. And thank you that you invite us. You invite us in to the secret place with you to connect with your heart, to hear what you have to say. So, Lord, let us slow down long enough during this season to hear what you're speaking to the church as a whole and to us as individuals. We trust you and believe you for the outcome, and we thank you that you will receive all honor and all glory because you are God and we love you. We pray this in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for joining us tonight for our word and prayer time here on this live stream. And we hope that you'll join us Sunday for our Sunday morning worship service at 10 o'clock. God bless you. We hope to see you there. Have a great evening.